Welcome, everyone, to our newest edition of BAMS Radio, post-National Signing Day on this February 9th, 2018. I'm your host, Drew Armin. Always love being back with you on BAMS Radio, along with my co-host and the wizard behind the curtain extraordinaire, Thomas Watts, and our third amigo, of course, from 89 to 93, a big part of the Alabama Crimson Tide, and their 12th national championship, William Redfish Barger, uh, who uh, played, of course, offensive line uh, with that memorable group. And speaking of that group, uh, they are uh, down a member now. Uh, he's, he's gone much too soon. Uh, Jeremy Nunley, who was the third end on that team, but certainly uh, a great football player from Winchester, Tennessee, uh, you know, and a guy that graduated with William in 1993, his last year of eligibility, when, of course, once Copeland and Curry had moved on to the National Football League as first-round draft picks, Jeremy Nunley, 10 sacks uh, as a senior in 1993, all SEC, uh, and uh, went on to be a second-round draft choice of, of his own and played three seasons with the Houston Oilers. Uh, had since moved to Tuscaloosa with his wife and two daughters, but tragically this past week, gone much too soon uh, due to a heart attack uh, at the age of 46 years old. And our thoughts and prayers go out to Jeremy Nunley and his family. I said the same uh, this Monday on Talking Ball. Uh, you just you never want to lose someone of that stature at that age. And he's a, a great football player. Uh, and, of course, uh, they uh, remembered him today. And uh, now joining us is William Redfish Barger, who roomed with Jeremy Nunley for three years and knows him better than any. Uh, just uh, first of all, uh, William, we want to give our thoughts and prayers to his family um, we uh, we uh, we just uh, really are shocked and saddened by this, but uh, a great football player in person uh, gone uh, much too soon. Absolutely. Um, now let me go back real quick and do the math. Um, we moved in together in December of '89, and down on the basketball end of the third floor of Bryant Hall. And we lived together until, oh, when did John Clay and I finally move out and get an apartment? I would say, um, God, that apartment was, I know I was still living with him during the whole season of 91. I think we moved out, I think we got an apartment there behind the houndstooth in the spring of 92 so more closer to two and a half years than three i'm just trying to you know right right accurate here but uh you know i went to his parents house with him you know 10 times um he came up to birmingham you know spent time with my family um you know we uh you know kind of you know attracted to each other immediately off the bat. I think we kind of had the similar, you know, mindsets, you know, certainly both of us uh, lived up the, the college football lifestyle and, and all the spoils that goes with it. Um, got in a lot of trouble together, um, but had a lot of great times together. Um, you know, in my opinion, you know, being a former offensive lineman, the thing that always impressed me about Jeremy um, and if you'll go back and look, um, you know, he, he was, you know, in spot duty, I should say, you know, certainly he had to play second fiddle to Copeland and Curry for a while, but, you know, he, he got, 
involved in, in the third down package very early on in his career. Um, I think, you know, by the 1990 Auburn game, which would have been um, – that was my first Iron Bowl to start. You know, I think he had a sack of Stan White in that game. Um, but, you know, the thing that always impressed me about him um, and, you know, he, he had a, a natural, a God-given attribute that a lot of people can't control. Had extremely long arms, you know. But for somebody that was close to six foot five, um, played with great pad level and great leverage. I mean, he was not a fun matchup in practice to block. Um, and I would say, as a you know, an interior offensive lineman, obviously the the number one nightmare was John Copeland. But if you had given me a, a choice after Copeland of who the, the you know, the, the next, you know, problem was, it was Jeremy. Um, you know, he was very effective. And you're talking about a guy that was playing at a high level in the SEC at 6'5", 240 pounds until probably, you know, he was one of those guys, I would, I would compare him to Toby Shields. They would both get up to the 260 range you know, in the off season, and then as soon as all the running kicked in and two-a-days in the summer, you know, both of them were back down around the 245-pound range. But, you know, Jeremy was, was just like Copeland. You know, he was an effective, you know, five-technique defensive end and was a great edge rusher. But what I thought separated him from Eric Curry, and it's one of the things that, you know, was John Copeland was so good at, is when you brought him down into condensed space on the interior – um, you know, Jeremy and Copeland were both just as, just as effective of being pass rushers as a three-technique defensive tackle as they were on the outside. And, uh, you know, very difficult to block um, on running plays because of his pad level and his long arms and his leverage. Um, but, man, just a, just a free spirit that, that marched to the beat of his own drum. Um, you know, you – you, you either loved him or hated him um, because of that. Um, and I would say that, you know, my personality was probably the same way. But I don't think you'll find anybody um, that was in that locker room that has a bad thing to say about him. I mean, he was a jokester. Um, you know, when, when you came in and, and uh, you know, took your pads off and got naked and went to the showers, you better be real secure about yourself if you wanted to buy Jeremy's uh, locker. Because uh, he was going to let you know everything that was wrong with you on the way to the showers. But, um, you know, he, uh, you know, kind of had a rough pro career after getting drafted in the second round by Houston. He, he blew his Achilles tendon out um, at Houston. And, and while he was rehabbing for that, he actually got traded um, to the Carolina Panthers. And that's where his career, you know, kind of ended up was out in Carolina. Um, where he blew his, his other Achilles attendant out. And, uh, you know, it was very close to getting, you know, the three-year, three-game deal back in the 90s that you needed to get your pension, but he, he was not able to pull that off because of the injuries. But, um, you know, I, I know his mother, Edith, and his dad, uh, Jody, um, you know, we called him the Silver, Silver Fox. Um, you know, my heart breaks for him. You know, he uh, had his oldest daughter get married in Tuscaloosa in the past year. Um, his, his baby girl is, is in a sorority in Tuscaloosa right now. And, um, you know, it's, it's just very unfortunate, you know, gone way too soon. But, you know, you'll, you know, probably, you know, one of his best friends, and I've said this on the show before, and I think, um, you know, another guy, 
even though he wasn't as wild and out of control as Jeremy and I were. But, you know, Jeremy was very close with Kevin Turner. And, and I think both of those guys are, you know, two of the better football players that I had the opportunity not only play with, but, you know, to observe just how talented they were. Um, you know, neither one of them were high-profile recruits. Um, some people may not know this, but Jeremy actually went to uh, the same high school and grew up in the same community that both Johnny Majors and Phil Fulmer did. Yeah, that's and, right. And that's when I first met. That's when I first met Jeremy was the summer before our senior years. Um, we, we first met up at Tennessee's uh, Blue Chip Recruiting Camp up in Knoxville in June of '88. Um, but yeah, man, I, I appreciate y'all taking the time to you know, pay tribute to him. Um, you know, the guy gave his all for Alabama. Um, and it was very, you know, I know he finally got his chance to shine as a senior in 93, but, you know, the, the guy was a very big part um, of the, you know, the 90, 91, and 92 teams um, just because he was so versatile and such an elite pass rusher. Well, and the thing I remember most about number 73 is, uh, when he came in for Copeland and Curry, and that's how that's why that defense, in my opinion, is still the greatest I've ever seen. There was zero draw. Agree. Zero. Agree. <laughs> and you know, and Copeland and Curry were both first team All Americans, and rightfully so, and were great football players. But Jeremy Nunley does not get nearly the credit he deserves. And quite frankly, for Philip Fulmer, uh, that's one of the biggest recruiting mistakes he ever made. Because just talking to some people that I'm close with, including Rodney Orr. From their recollection, Tennessee didn't even recruit Jeremy Nunley, which is to Alabama's, you know, advantage. And Bill Curry signed Jeremy, but he was developed so well uh, by Mike DeBose and uh, by. Well, now you can't you can't place that blame on Fulmer because he was, uh, you know, just not the head coach, coach. right? But that was on that was on Johnny Major's shoulders. Yeah, that's true. That's a very good point. Uh, Johnny Major's also didn't recruit him. But, you know, to what you were saying, um, you know, you know, a lot of people did. If I want to, if memory serves me right, I think outside of Alabama, and you got to give, uh, you know, Bill Curry's former recruiting coordinator, Tommy Limbaugh, uh, credit, because he actually did go right up there. Uh, you know, Antonio London, um, who was also in our class, Right, um, from Tullahoma. Tullahoma. And, and Jeremy was actually from a small community outside of Tullahoma called Estill Springs, or, you know, some people refer to it as Winchester. And uh, Tommy Limbaugh went up there and got both Antonio London, who I can promise you Tennessee did want. But, but if memory serves me right, I think the, the best offer outside of Alabama, the two best offers outside of Alabama, that Jeremy had were Vanderbilt and Georgia Tech, um, wow. which is crazy. Yeah, because, also you know, there, there means was he was no smart. Doubt. <laughs> yeah, well, no, yes, yes, he was. But there was no doubt, you know, from day one when we were freshmen, you know, that the guy could have played for anybody in the country. And, you know, obviously um, he carved out a role for himself, like you said, on, you know, the best defense in Alabama football history, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, but they don't take uh, people that can't play very often in the second round of the NFL draft. And he went very early in the second round. So, you know, I just hate it, um, you know, just because he was larger than life and, and, 
you know, had settled into, you know, the community there in Tuscaloosa. Um, you know, a lot of people got to know him in a social setting and, um, you know, he was loved by that community. And, uh, you know, like you said, man, you just, you just hate to see this, but unfortunately, um, you know, as you get older, you know, this is something that, you know, you have to kind of start preparing for and dealing with. And until you have to actually start dealing with it, I don't think you're really prepared for it. You think you are, but you're really not. Great point and a great insight from William Barger, who knew Jeremy Nunley uh, better than any. And uh, we, again, thoughts and prayers to his wife and two daughters and uh, to everyone. And, of course, to the uh, Alabama football family who has lost one of theirs, uh, especially that's that close-knit 92 group uh, that was unbeaten 13-0, and won the SEC and the, the first SEC championship game and the national championship, ending the Miami Hurricanes' dominance. And really, for the end of time, the U really only making one brief appearance in 2001. Uh, since that time, that program has never been the same. You'll never see that on a 30 for 30 because they uh, conveniently delete that from their memories. Uh, but it was an ass whipping that they will never live down uh, and that they took. And Jeremy Nunley was a big part of that uh, as the Hurricanes went down 34 to 13 after counting their chickens before they hatched against Alabama. Uh, but uh, I will to, to turn attention now to signing day. We've uh, to, before we talk about kind of what went down. We've seen some more attrition in the coaching staff, and and this was a situation, William, where it wasn't a complete surprise. Uh, it was rumored down the stretch of the regular season, then seemed to dissipate uh, in the maybe the two to three weeks before national signing day. It was thought that Carl Dunbar might stay one more year, but once signing day went down. Uh, there were some issues on the, on the defensive line and filling out the class. Uh, and, and we see Carl Dunbar, who was a, an, an excellent coach, just maybe not the recruiter Nick Saban was looking for, uh, but he still did an outstanding job on the field. But Carl Dunbar going back to the NFL to the Pittsburgh Steelers, uh, your thoughts? You know, that's one thing that I've seen, you know, on the Internet, you know, going all the way back to National Signing Day, that, that I, you know, I, I really – you know, take offense to and disagree with. I, 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 and I understand, um, you know, with, with what Kirby Smart did this year at Georgia recruiting-wise, you know, I get it. But but I would rather have um, at one of the most critical positions on the football field, I would rather have an elite coach, an elite X's and O's guy like Carl Dunbar, um, you know, coaching that position versus a guy that can recruit. You know, I, I can remember, you know, after Bo Davis got fired, um, you know, everybody thought that the defensive line was going to take a step back. You know, obviously, hell, you and I could have probably gone down there and coached Jonathan Allen and Dalvin Tomlinson and Ryan Anderson. But, you know, even after that, that 2016 season, um, you, you saw the same thing. Well, the defensive line is going to go backwards. Well, it didn't. Um you know, I thought the development job that he did with Raekwon Davis uh, was phenomenal. Um, but, you know, was the guy a great recruiter? No. But, you know, you give me, um, you know, the choice of having, you know, if the staff still had, you know, a Jeremy Pruitt on it or maybe a Mario Cristobal to go along with Tosh Lapoy. Um, you know, I, I just personally, at a critical position like the defensive line, I would rather have an elite teacher there than somebody that may just be an average recruiter. And, you know, 
some people are, are dinging, you know, Carl for, you know, the loss of Bobby Brown. And, you know, that wasn't even his guy. That was Tosh LePoy's guy. But um, I think the guy did a great job. I thought he was great for the program. Um, but, you know, what, what you're seeing now, Drew, with, with this coaching staff and the hires, you know, that, that, that Coach Saban is making is, you know, it really rivals what he did when he got down to LSU. And he started hiring people that at the time, you know, nobody had ever heard of. Um, you know, a guy that, you know, had been a GA at Georgia um, and, and Auburn, uh, you know, guys like Will Muschamp and Kirby Smart, nobody knew who the hell they were. Uh, nobody knew who Jimbo Fisher was. Nobody knew who Derek Dooley was. You know, all those guys are, you know, have been or are currently, you know, college football head coaches. Um, but I, I, that's what I'm seeing now is, you know, Coach Saban is, is astute enough to realize that the states of Mississippi and Louisiana, you know, have once-in-a-generational talent levels for the 2019 recruiting cycle. And you're seeing him go out there and find guys, you know, that, that nobody's really ever heard of. Um, you know, Jeff Banks, uh, Pete Golding, um, you know, the DB coach from Texas Tech. Um, Carl you know, Scott. One of the guys that's, yeah, Carl Scott, you know, one of the guys that's been mentioned for, you know, the defensive line job, um, the Henderson guy that's currently at uh, the San Diego Chargers but worked with Pete Golding and Bo Davis at, you know, Texas San Antonio two years ago. You know, he's going and getting guys that either played high school football college football um, in those states, or they've worked at schools that recruited Mississippi and, and Louisiana, um, you know, thoroughly, and, you know, kind of reached over into that Houston metro area, um, which, you know, is basically right there across the state line from the state of Louisiana, too. So, um, you know, he's circling the wagons. I think he's uh, rejuvenated and motivated to go out and make a statement, Um because, you know, there's some, you know, new faces and some instability in, in the state of Mississippi, at Mississippi State and Ole Miss. Uh, you know, you certainly can't say that, um, you know, Ed Ogeron's on solid ground at, at, at LSU. Um, you know, you got Jimbo Fisher, you know, at Texas A&M. You know, there's, you know, there's great players to be had in that geographic area. And I think Coach Saban's done a great job of going out and identifying young, hungry guys that know if they get a successful stamp of approval on their, you know, their resumes from a guy like Nick Saban, um, you know, they're going to be, you know, the next Kirby Smart, uh, Will Muschamp, Jimbo Fisher, and Jeremy Pruitt. You know, they're, you know, probably three to five years away if they're successful at Alabama and they, they impress Nick Saban you know, they'll be college head football coaches in the next three to five years. And, you know, I think that, you know, Tosh LePoy is, you know, probably in the 24-month the window right now. If he puts a, you know, a top ten product on the field um, in the next two years as the D.C. at Alabama, um, you know, there'll probably be multiple schools, you know, out west where he comes from um, that's going to want him to be their next head football coach. So, um, you know, it's amazing to look at, um, you know, that Nick Saban coaching tree as it expands and continues to grow. It is, and I guess the only the only problem I had in, uh, it, with the end of the recruiting class, and 
you know, Coach Saban does not make many mistakes on the recruiting trail. But as you said, uh, you know, I think, and he was Tosh's guy, the staff, and uh, probably put a little bit too much faith in Bobby Brown. I mean, when he didn't sign early, and they, even Coach Saban's admitted, you know, they've they they're kind of learning about how how they probably should have handled the early signing period, or you know, a little bit more efficiently and better. Uh, you know, when he didn't sign early after committing on the last day, uh, they probably should have treated him as a bonus and gone out and told Malik Langham and uh, that he was their guy. And they did for the for a, a good while until you know right before signing day, and they began to slow play. And they should have just said, "You're you're here no matter what." He would have been there. And if they had done the same with Glenn Beal, he would have been as well. Then you treat Bobby Brown kind of like a bonus. If he stays committed, he can be, you know, the eighth guy, so to speak. If not, he drops off and you just bring Michael Parker in. Uh, but, you know, hindsight's a lot of things. But I will say that I have confirmed, you know, Bobby Brown and his mother, <laughs> they weren't ethical at all from the standpoint of they told Nick Saban they were coming 7, 10, 15 in the morning on Wednesday, 15 minutes later they signed with A&M. I mean, you know, but, you know, you have to live and learn. Uh, and I, Coach Saban, I know, wasn't pleased with the character shown by Bobby Brown or Quay Walker. That happens. He didn't like the way either one of those young men handled the process. And ironically, both of those guys could have could have signed early and should have. And I think Alabama, they had already figured out what Quay Walker was going to do, that he was not going to be part of the class. But Bobby Brown, you know, that was a situation that was kind of misplayed. Nick Saban was really angry because it cost them Malik Langham and Glenn Beale. Uh, Bill going to Texas A&M along with Bobby Brown. So, but again, uh, they still got Christian Barmore early, which is huge, uh, great player. Uh, they've got Stephon Wynn, who's now on campus as an early enrollee, got a chance to be a, a really good player. Uh, so, you know, they they did get a couple of good ones, and now it does give them a little bit of flexibility. They got three scholarships they could back count next year. They could go after some graduate transfers. Uh, there's some young men, uh, you know, Coach Saban said they're still on the lookout for another defensive lineman. A lot of times they haven't had the this, this scholarship flexibility to go after graduate guys, as he's mentioned. So got a chance to do some of that now. So, uh, again, but still the most important uh, part of, uh, you know, the, that this late signing period also was that they got the two best players that they wanted in Patrick Sertain Jr. Uh, and Jalen Waddell, who to me was the best players on their board remaining on offense and defense and are both first-year impact guys. Uh, I talked to Mike Dettelier earlier today on my Talking Ball show. He believes Sertain Jr. has the best ball skills he's ever seen of a young corner and is a plug-and-play guy, William, along the lines of Minka Fitzpatrick. He, 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 he told me if he doesn't start the first game at corner, he'll at least be the nickel, and he thinks he is that uh, you know advanced technically and fundamentally and also from the standpoint of a football IQ. Yeah, before we, before I at least I jump in on the certain deal, I want to uh, hit the rewind button because I totally agree with you. Um, and again, this this isn't me second guessing Nick Saban. I'm not that stupid, but I, I was never as enamored with Bobby Brown as a football player as some other people were. Gotcha. Uh, number one, he's only got a 14 on the ACT. Um, he's got a, in my opinion, a creepy attachment to his mother. You know, at 18 years old, um, you're just not supposed to be, you know, still in your mother's lap. And number three, uh, which is another pet peeve of mine, he, he is somebody that thinks it's still politically correct to kneel during the national anthem being played. And I don't want anybody like that in my huddle. 
and, and four, um, if you don't look at his highlights and you watch the whole game tape, he is not a high-motor, high-effort guy. Um, he's, he's the antithesis of a guy like Raekwon Davis that, you know, had some academic struggles coming out of high school but has overcome them um, off the field, number one. But what he's been able to do on the field, and I, I give Carl Dunbar a lot of credit with this, you know, this guy with, with basically the only experience going into the 2017 season because of, you know, guys like Jonathan Allen and Dalvin Tomlinson, was, you know, garbage time mop-up duty in 2016. You know, Raekwon Davis was able to become the third leading tackler on Alabama's team last year, the leading sack guy, and, you know, even though he wasn't a full-time starter, was a, was a, a first-team All-SEC selection based on his production by the coaches. And, you know, he's a guy that I've already, not, not in pencil, but in ink penciled in as somebody that's going to have a monster year this year. But I would have rather have had Malik Langham than Bobby Brown, you know, if it was up to me, Drew. Um, and, and by the way, um, I don't know if you know this or not, I didn't find it out until late this afternoon. And this will make a little bit more sense to the listeners that, that maybe want some more insight into how the Malik Langham uh, recruitment went south. Do you know who his uh, – after Dan Mullen got the job at Florida, do you know who Malik Langham's lead recruiter was for Florida? Uh, who, his, who his lead recruiter was? I do not. Your old buddy Sal Sonseri. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he did hire Sal uh, as, so, so uh, as you, I believe, the defensive end coach. The fact that, you know, Nick was probably slow playing Malik, who do you think was on the other end of the phone Sinking that hook set into Malik, letting him know that that's exactly what was happening. Oh uh, yeah, was South Sunset. Yep, that's a great point. And uh, you know, uh, and uh, he was hired as the defensive line coach, one of the last hires for Dan Mullen. And, uh, and he had don't been... feel bad for not not knowing that because I didn't find it out till almost an hour ago. Well, you know, but, and I re- um, I remember him being announced as a, as on that staff, but I really didn't really occur to me. But you're right; it had it makes a lot of but, but jumping back ahead to uh, – and, you know, I, I think that was probably in my mind, you know, Drew, when you talk about this recruiting class, that that was probably the only area that was missed, in my opinion, um, was at the defensive line spot. They, they needed one more guy, whether it was Bobby Brown or Malik Langham. I've already said I wish it had been Malik Langham because I think he's got a, a higher ceiling. But – you know, the, the three areas of need in this class were wide receiver, DB, and, and D-line. Um, you know, having having a guy like Jalen Waddell um, headlining the, the, the receiver class um, is really all they needed. Um, certainly they needed one more body, you know, one more good player, either Bobby Brown or Langham at D-line. Like you said, I think, you know, Wynn is going to be a – a real solid performer as a five-technique defensive end. Um, I think Christian Bearmore is, you know, a year of solid coaching away from maybe even being another Raekwon Davis. But, you know, the, the real area of need was the DB class. And I think, you know, Coach Saban and the staff responded with what, in my opinion, is the best DB class I've ever seen signed at Alabama. Um, you know, you've got – 
uh, you know, Sertain and Eddie Smith here late in the process. You know, people forget about Jalen Armour Davis, uh, you know, Josh Job and Savion Smith being early signees. Um, you know, the early reports are Smith, May, Savion, you know, could be one of the starting quarters from day one. Um, you know, some people refer to Jalen Armour Davis as kind of a poor man's Minka Fitzpatrick. And really, I think the only, you know, kind of even halfway question mark is Josh Job. You know, there's there's some questions about whether or not, you know, he's a, a corner or safety. He might have some, you know, you know, hip stiffness issues that, you know, pushes him over to the safety spot. But still, you know, a guy that went out there to the Army All-American game and performed at a very high level. Um, you know, as far as Sertain is concerned, you know, I think one – you know, really unique point that I discovered during his recruitment was his father, Patrick Sertain Sr., only missed being coached by Nick Saban by six months. He was traded to the Kansas City Chiefs six months prior to Nick Saban becoming the head coach at Miami. Um, and, of course, you know, a guy like that, you know, there's been some, you know, some, some people that have made comments about, well, you know, can Sertain digest the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica slash Saban, that's the defensive playbook. And I think having a, a, a father um, that played, you know, 10-plus years in the NFL as a cornerback, and I think he was either a two- or a three-time pro bowler, uh, can certainly help that young man between now and August digest the playbook. And, uh, you know, th that was kind of the – you know, the scouting report that I got from, you know, both of those two South Florida players in, in Sertain and Tyson Campbell is pretty much everybody on the staff felt like that Sertain was the more, you know, day one ready guy to compete and play, maybe even start in the SEC. But maybe Tyson Campbell had the higher ceiling down the road. Well, that remains to be seen. We'll see what Kirby Smart and Mel Tucker can do with him. But, um, no, I think, you know, getting, you know, stealing, you know, Patrick Sertain away from Corey Raymond at LSU, um, who had led for his recruitment for two years, maybe even three, um, was a huge uh, coup for this recruiting class. And I, I'm going to – because I know you were talking about, like, the two guys that were – you know, in the latter part of the class that weren't early signees. But, you know, the, the reason why I'm higher on this class than a lot of other people are is I feel like Alabama got the two most explosive players in the country this year on both sides of the football. They got Jalen Waddell at wide receiver, and they got eBay and Noma um, in the early signing period, obviously, who a lot of people think has the potential to be not just a top ten pick, but a number one overall pick in three or four years in the NFL draft. And, you know, so if you've got those two cornerstones of a recruiting class and you factor in that, you know, they, they filled their needs with that DB class and, and, you know, scattered out with some other really good football players, I just don't understand, you know, outside of Alabama fans being star watchers and, you know, was it the number one class or the number seven class? Who cares? Um, you know, I thought this was interesting, too, because I, I was so 
just befuddled by all the the vitriol that was coming from Alabama fans. Um, the, the four classes leading up to Nick Saban's national championship at LSU finished number two, number three, number 21, and number 21. And I think that goes back to the point of, you know, in, in 2008 when he got the team to the number one team in the country, and he, he did that with 17 starters that were Mike Shula recruits at Alabama and then followed that back up the next year when they beat Texas for the national championship in 2009. And if memory serves me right, I think either 13 or 14 starters on that team were Mike Shula recruits. So you really – don't get me wrong, I get it. You know, you sign the best players, you know, success is going to follow you. But I just think that's 50% on one side of the equation – as to what makes Nick Saban so good. Really, what makes him so good, especially if you look at those classes he signed at LSU, is the process, and that's his player development program. Um, Any recruiting class that Nick Saban signs from now going forward that finishes in the top ten is more than enough for him to keep winning on the same level that he's winning at. And you make a great point about Iyabi and Noma from St. Francis Academy in Baltimore, Maryland. Only played football for two years. Came off the uh, before the 2016 season. He transferred to St. Francis uh, off the basketball court. And in two years, had 50 sacks, 50-plus 50 sacks uh, in, in, on the high school level. Uh, you know, he's considered a top three recruit overall nationally. Uh, could be better than that, like William said. Uh, and I think he has that special kind of work ethic. He basically said on Twitter – you either roll with the tide or you get run over. And uh, he, uh, you know, he's, I think he realizes you have to work. He likes that, uh, you know, aspect. And Alabama didn't get Nicholas Petit Friere. Uh, they went down to the wire with him. He went to Ohio State to do some factors, uh, you know, an internship he wanted to do uh, in the spring and not, and not go through to a football and join the program in the fall. I'm not sure Nick Saban was thrilled with that. And his high school coach, I think, was directing him to Ohio State. But I'll say this. Iyabi Anoma embarrassed him in the in the Under Armour game. He didn't just whip him; he embarrassed him. And and everybody well, knows Freire is a future first round pick. And I'm not discounting anything about Freire. I think he's going to be a really good, great player on the college level. I'm just trying to talk about how good Iyabi Anoma could be. And of course, as you said, William, he signed with Alabama early. Well, Drew, I never had you know based on the people that I talked to. I never had any degree of confidence that Petit Pierre was coming to Alabama. I understand that he made – both he and his mother made some overtures. But, you know, people have to understand, especially Alabama fans, that the goal for these kids – you know, some of them, yeah, they do. They buy in and they want a chance to win a national championship and get a ring. But the goal of these kids, especially somebody like Petit Pierre that's 30 pounds away from being a a first-round draft pick, maybe even a top-ten draft pick, is they want to go someplace where they've got the easiest path to early playing time. And I can promise you, coming into the offensive line situation at Alabama, that's not not the easiest path for somebody like Petit Fierre. And I'm not saying the kid didn't want to compete, uh, you know, maybe after being embarrassed by – uh, a Noma in the Under Armour game, that might have changed his mind altogether. Although that probably would have made him better every day 
um, in practice going up against him, just like I got better every day going up against Eric Curry, John Copeland, and Jeremy Nunley. But I, I never had any degree of confidence that that kid was coming, and, and that's why. Um, why would you um, not go to either Florida or Ohio State that both have, you know, turnstile situations? You know, outside of, of Urban Meyer's stubbornness at the quarterback situation, you know, that, that's the other position that has really prevented Ohio State, you know, despite all the, the top three recruiting classes, you know, that's kept them from that, taking that next step is they just don't have, you know, they got to, you know, they always have good centers and guards, but their offensive tackles are garbage. And, you know, the, the, the thing that really stuck to me, and I'm going to pose this question to you, and I think you can probably figure it out real quick. Uh, somebody that really shined early and often this year um, for Alabama as a true freshman that only had two years of high school football under their belt and kind of thought they were going to take the same uh, uh, athletic path that Anoma thought he was going to take, and that is as a D1 uh, college basketball player. Uh, you know, there's somebody that's already on campus, Drew, that, that has that same description attached to their bio. Who's that? And uh, currently on the team now, you're saying – has that kind of bio. Uh, I, I was a I, true freshman this past year. Right. He was a true. You're saying he was a true freshman this past year, and he has the same yeah. kind of bio uh, on the uh, uh, two, two year two years of, of high school football. Right. And himself thought of himself as a D1 basketball prospect until he switched to football. Let, let our listeners know who that young man is. Henry Ruggs. That's right. Uh, Henry Ruggs, he had played in middle school, uh, but not played football uh, since that time. And uh, his high school coach was able to get him out for his junior year, uh, as William uh, just mentioned. And you can you can go on YouTube and uh, watch him do chin-ups on the rim and dunk a basketball. And he really was hoping uh, to be a basketball player, but has a just a long-term future on the football field. And William, uh, and this is a compliment to him as a freshman, but he basically did his Chris Carter impersonation this year, and all he did was catch touchdowns. And he led uh, this team in touchdown catches as a true freshman. Yeah, and, you know, Drew, I think that's probably, you know, for all the people that are worried about this recruiting class, I, I want them to, you know, take this all in and absorb it. Because, you know, even, even as a high school player and, and a, you know, a pretty high recruit myself, I was always a recruiting junkie um, all the way through high school, college, and obviously as an adult. But but just, just let this sink in for a minute. Ha, has there ever been before, which I know the answer is no, and will there ever be again? And, of course, I'm cherry-picking my own formation here. Let, let's go ahead and put this out. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a three-wide receiver set with no tight ends and two running backs, of course. But out of that offensive formation, I know the answer that has, has never happened before. No, it hasn't. Will it ever happen again? Um, you know, if, if Jonah Williams and Jedrick Wills and Alec Leatherwood win their spots on the offensive line, we're going to trot an offensive unit out there against Louisville in a three-wide receiver set, two running back set with nine 
former five-star recruits on the field. That is retarded. Yeah, that's ridiculous. That That's in the top two running backs to be five stars as well, and Damian Harris and uh, Najee Harris, who not related, but were number one in the country at their positions uh, a couple of years apart. Uh, but Damian Harris coming back to this program, uh, which I think has still not been, uh, you know, talked about enough. Uh, that's tremendous. Uh, and then Josh Jacobs will be healthy uh, as he played most of the year with a broken ankle, which is mind-numbing. Uh, with uh, Josh Jacobs as well, that's a great, that's an great amazing... player in his own right. Just just has to, right? You know, we're we're in we're you know we're going into year three, and I think you know the only thing that's holding Josh Jacob uh, Jacobs back from being an elite you know college football running back is you know we have to almost get to the point now to where we, we start talking about and comparing him to Brody Croyle. You know, does he have a bad body? You know carry on Johnson is he injury prone but it doesn't diminish his ability and I think that you know Damian Harris Najee Harris Josh Jacob running back rotation and that, that's not a given I mean um obviously right. Damian's going to be the starter right uh, but you know Jacobs could be number two if he stays healthy and, and Najee could go into you know 2018 as the third team guy um but you know that, that, those are three great college football running backs that, that you know, all, you know, have individual elite skill sets. And Brian so Robinson ain't – right, Brian Robinson. <laughs> exactly. Somebody that a lot of people in the recruiting industry wanted to pull the trigger on and, and make him a five-star player. Uh, obviously, you know, they're, they're going to – make the, the quarterback battle legitimate in the spring, but, you know, uh, you and Ryan Fowler have beaten me down so bad, I'm just going to go ahead and say that I think Tua is going to be the starter. Um, but, you know, you look at that, that talent pool that they're fixing to put out there, you know, with the three five-star offensive linemen, Jonah Williams, Jedrick Wills, Alex Leatherwood, um, you know, they weren't all consensus five-stars, but somebody – and at least one recruiting service said that Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs, and Devonta Smith were a five-star. And then you've got, you know, Tua, Damian Harris, and Najee Harris. I mean, that, that's just ridiculous. It is ridiculous. And, again, I do think this was still a really good recruiting class. Just a little disappointed in the defensive line, but, you know, they should be able to rectify that in the next class, and I'm sure that's going to be a huge emphasis along with linebackers. Nick Saban said they wanted one more linebacker, too. but And they would have got that in J.J. Peterson, but uh, they thought they were going to hold on to Jeremy Pruitt one more year. But due to the botched search and the athletic director issues at Tennessee, uh, it was a perfect storm. And Jeremy Pruitt, and he deserves it, uh, gets his shot with the balls and was able to hold on to J.J. Peterson. Uh, I know a lot of people have talked about Vernon Jackson, but Vernon wanted to be a running back, didn't really have it in, in his heart to – to at least to start out on defense. Uh, he didn't seem to, to, to fit, uh, I guess, after Alabama completed their evaluation, uh, the profile as far as wanting to believe he could play at Alabama. And so they decided to let him stay home, didn't even send him an LOI to Texas A&M. Good luck to him. He's a good prospect. Very, I think he'd be a fine player, but he's going to have to, to uh, buy into being a defender. He's not going to be a running back at Texas A&M. No, and I think that's also something else that Alabama fans have to look at. 
is, you know, what Alabama's plan for him was, was to turn him into a linebacker. Exactly. And, you know, that's a lot easier said than done to take a guy that was a wildcat quarterback and a running back, you know, in high school. Don't forget, Drew, there was a lot of, uh, uh, you know, national recruiting experts, you know, not named Tom Luganville, that thought that's what Alabama should do with Derrick Henry. So, you know, that that's – I don't have any problem with the Vernon Jackson defection. I'm actually happy that Bobby Brown and his, his uh, clingy mother – uh, went somewhere else as well. Um, you know, you, you know the one that kind of sticks in my craw is, you know, the guy that's right up there in your backyard, Malik Langham. That, that's the one that I wish they would have oh, got. Yeah. But, you know, when you start looking at this class and, you know, where, the, where the, the needs were met, and, you know, look, with the coaching hires that Coach Saban is making, um, you know, they're going to get the number one uh, offensive line class in the country by default just by taking the three uh, uh, guys in state next year and Pierce Quick, Clay Webb, and Amari Kite, who I think all three of them are five-star players. Um, you know, they're, they're in with uh, the Couch kid who's, you know, some people think is the number one running back in the, the nation next year. When Davis uh, Crouch, yep. You know, let, let's let's go over into the state of Mississippi, Louisiana, into that metro Houston area. You know, something, Drew, we haven't talked about that I'm really excited about is, you know, finally having a special teams guru on the staff in Jeff Banks. Um, you know, maybe we can finally get to the point to where we don't sign the number one place kicker in the country and just ruin it. Point. They, that is a great point. Austin Jones from Temple is going to be a graduate transfer and be thrown into the mix there. Uh, and uh, very excited to see what he can do. But really, that's a perfect segue to Jalen Waddell, who I was uh, thought was the, the best receiver that they were recruiting all year. They didn't get Justin Ross, and you always want to get the top player in your state. He would have brought a skill set. Uh, I still think Ross probably would have redshirted and eventually been a contributor at Alabama, but. He wasn't a guy of need because they've got Terrell Shavers coming off a red shirt. Uh, they've got uh, he's not going to beat out the Jerry Judys, uh, the Devonta Smiths, uh, or of course Henry Ruggs III, who we've already talked about. Uh, and uh, but uh, but Jalen Waddle was a special fit. He's a guy that can make a huge impact, and I will be beyond shocked if he is not the punt returner against Louisville and Orlando. And Jeff Banks made special mention of him making an impact as a kickoff and punt returner. That is the one aspect Alabama was lacking last year. This is a football team, in my opinion. Jalen Waddle will immediately change that. And I know, William, you've watched this film extensively. I have. I had Wes Neighbors do it. And it is a consensus. He is a freak. I asked Taylor Ham on my show on Thursday, who's as connected to Texas A&M recruiting as any, and he said that was the only miss on signing day A&M had. And he told me, this is a guy – it's uh, in the class of Christian Kirk and maybe better. He's got the work ethic. He he stays in the film room. He is smart enough. He could have enrolled early, but they don't allow early enrollees from uh, Episcopal High School in Bel Air, Texas, near Houston. Uh, it's a private school league. It's a good. He plays against really good competition. He put on a show in the Army game. Uh, he's a guy that's going to have a true impact as a freshman, 
and Nick Saban is excited about him because he brings a different skill set than the other receivers. This is going to be as well-rounded a receiver core, William, as Alabama has ever had, and now they have a generational quarterback in Tua Tonga-Vailoa. So good luck to Kirby and the rest of the guys because this offense is going to be very, very hard to stop, as you said, because, it, because they could have nine five-stars and really now ten because Jalen Waddell, if, if you don't have him rated a five-star, you might as well just resign because that's what he is. <laughs> um, I, I totally agree, number one. Number two, I, I, I don't really know just how good um, the high school competition was that he played against. What, but, you know, I know enough about this stuff where it doesn't matter. Um, when you watch his film, Drew, um, you know, as a man, if your crotch doesn't tangle, you don't know what you're looking at. And the fact that it took the so-called experts till the day before National Signing Day to name him a five-star tells you all you need to know about the experts that you're paying $125 a year um, to rate players for you. Um, like I said before, Alabama signed the two most explosive players on either side of the football in the country in Jalen Waddell and eBay Anoma. And all you had to do was listen to Nick Saban's comments about the recruits in his press conference post-National Signing Day. It was, it was panned on every other player. And then when he stumbled upon Jalen Waddell, he got diarrhea of the mouth and got real elongated, uh, and real descriptive, and, and he should have uh, because he's gotten a generational talent. I don't care if he's five foot nine, Man, that guy has everything that you look for. Totally agree with what you said about getting him involved in the, the kickoff and punt return game. But, man, the guy is just – and you got to give him credit for, you know, taking that Texas A&M pressure and heat that he got, you know, from his community. You know, obviously Jimbo Fisher um, targeted him early and often once he got that job over there. But, you know, if you if you were to, you know, put me in a, a room, you know, with a guy with a gun in his hand and said, you know, gun to your head, uh, who would you rather have, Jalen Waddell or Justin Ross? Uh, I'd be brain dead if I said anything other than Jalen Waddle. Love him. Big yeah, he, time player. Um, you know, Drew, I, I'll go out on a limb right now just based on his high school film. I think he's better than Calvin Ridley. I think he's better than Jerry Judy. I think he's better than Henry Ruggs and Devonta Smith. Lord. And I wanted to ask you this question because you were fortunate enough to see him in practice, play with him. Uh, you saw him in high school. He's still, he's, I'm looking at his jersey on my wall right now, in my opinion, the greatest pound-for-pound football player I've ever seen at Alabama. But how does he compare to David Palmer on film? Well, now, you got to remember when, the, when, when David went through the, the NFL combine, he ran a 4 a He was not Waddle's fast. A, right. No, Jalen Waddle was a 4 four five forty guy. But, I, you know, I get your point. You're never going to get me to say, uh, anything bad about Papa Cherry, David Palmer. Um, he's got David Palmer shaking bait, but he's got elite top-end speed to go with it. And I think, the you know, the fact that the young man was able to, you know, withstand that hometown pressure, um, 
and you know, it's probably a little bit easier now to do that versus, you know, ten years ago when Mac Brown had Texas, you know, you know, as one of the top football programs in the country. Um, certainly, they're not now, and you know, they've got a, a head coach that wants to make out with you before each game. Uh, but but I think Jalen Waddle is outside of Julio Jones the best wide receiver signee of the Nick Saban era. And, you know, mark me down for saying that. If it comes back to haunt me, I'll be the first person to raise my hand and say I was wrong. Even more so than Amari Cooper. Oh, I forgot about Amari. Okay, hold hold up. Let me, let me, give me a, give me a backup moment a minute and add Amari to the Julio thing. Got it. Okay. It, so it's so right Mario now. Julio, then 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 uh, Jalen Waddle. But I the do big, think the big three, yeah, is good if not better than all those guys that have come after, including Calvin Ridley. I mean, this kid Drew is electric. I mean, if you watch his film, um, he does everything so well and so fluid. Um, he's explosive. He's 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 sudden. He changes directions. Um, you know, going back to, uh, you know, you and your boy Ryan Fowler beating me down about the Jalen Hurts uh, to a tongue of a low uh, race, um, you know, I, I can't imagine what he would look like running a quick slant um, with a left-handed quarterback named Tua Tonga Bailoa uh, hitting him on that slant route in stride and just sitting back and laughing. Uh, watching second and Kirby and Gus Malzahn and everybody else's defense is trying to cover him. With all the weapons, it really is amazing. And he was the missing piece offensively and just really fired up uh, that he's going to be a part of the Alabama football family. And he won't be enrolling early, as we've said, but he'll be there in the in the fall. And I don't think it's going to take him long uh, to make a huge impact uh, on this football team. But again, uh, they, I think it was a very solid signing class, as William is saying. Uh, they they just they met just about all their needs. The defensive back class is amazing, and it's really what they needed. As he already said, Joshua Job got to give Joe Panunzio a lot of credit for him and Patrick Sertain. Uh, then Eddie Smith, he's outstanding. Jalen Armour Davis, uh, and then Savion Smith. And I asked Mike Dettelier about Savion Smith. He said it's not about talent with Savion Smith. He never could fit in and focus at LSU. I do think Alabama's structure is going to be better for him. I think Alabama's coaches are very excited about Savion and what they saw in bowl prep. Uh, they think he can be a plug-and-play guy at corner, and I, you know, it wouldn't even it wouldn't even be a shock to me at some point next year if the two corners are Savion Smith and Patrick Sertain Jr. And if they are, every LSU fan in the country is going to have their head in the toilet uh, multiple times a week. Well, they already do, number one. But, you know, I think something else, you know, that we haven't talked about, Drew, that, you know, kind of impresses me because as the cycle, you know, gets longer, you get to see this kind of stuff um, increase. Um, you know, the guy that's working with the DB, the DBs this offseason is uh, somebody named Javier Arenas. Yeah, there you go. Uh, you know, the guy that's working with the running backs um, is a guy named Roy Upchurch. You know, the guy that's working with the outside linebackers is a guy by the name of Denzel Duvall. 
you're starting to see all of these, you know, really high-end players, you know, from, you know, 10 to 8 years ago come back into the program. You know, the the, the picture that I saw Javier Arenas t- uh, tweet out, you know, where he was working with, you know, Savion Smith and um, uh, Deontay Thompson and, and Xavier McKinney and stuff, you know, does two things. It puts into perspective just how short uh, Javi really was. I mean, you know, having a guy like that um, working with that position group, especially when you factor in, um, you know, the tragedy that he dealt with by coming back to Tuscaloosa, you know, during the off season when he was playing for the Kansas City Chiefs, he got caught up in that damn uh, 2011 tornado. But oh, yeah. you've got, you know, Coach Saban cycling these elite players, you know, back through the program and putting them back on the staff. And I think that's huge because they're still, you know, Drew young enough where they can relate to these guys and, and help them make informed decisions and business decisions about what they need to do in their careers. you got to love it. I, I'm so excited. I haven't been this excited about a – a spring practice since 2008. I mean, I, I just can't wait to see what the brain trust between, you know, Nick Saban, Mike Loxley, and Dan Enos, of all people, uh, come up with on offense. And then you've got, you know, Tosh Lapoy and, and you know, uh, his, his bro that he loves and talks positively about so much, you know, a guy that I kind of make fun of because he looks like a drunk. Um, but, you know, Tosh Lapoy loves Pete Golding. Oh, yeah. And those two guys, you know, kind of cueing that defense up over there. You know, Drew, we've talked about, um, you know, that defensive line coaching job. In a perfect world, if it was up to me, especially, you know, look, People have talked about, you know, Bo Davis being the headliner of that group. Bo Bo Davis was never going to get that job. Greg Sankey will not allow him to come back to the SEC uh, for the foreseeable future. Um, What I I, kind of would like to see, Drew, and, you know, I want to get your thoughts on this, is I kind of want to see the guy that never coached another position except for defensive line until he came to Alabama, I kind of would like to see Tosh LePoy take over the D-line and then let Nick go out and find a um, young, you know, guy that's, you know, hungry to come in and be the, you know, not Lance Thompson or Sal Sinceri. Go find a young guy that's hungry to come in and coach outside linebackers. What do you think? And that, that could happen. I've heard Glenn Schumann's name, but I've heard that also he likely wouldn't leave Kirby Smart at Georgia. Uh, but Nick Saban's got a Rolodex, and, and that could be a move he decides to make. I mean, uh, both at Cal Berkeley and at Washington, Tosh Lupoy coached the defensive line, developed first-round draft picks, high draft picks uh, at both places, and recruited very well. It would, it would not shock me if Tosh Lupoy were the defensive line coach, uh, but he may find the, the perfect fit at D-line. It could be Todd Bates. Uh, we'll see. It could be Eric Henderson. Or there, there's always a wild card out there that no one thinks of. No one had talked about Carl Dunbar. Uh, and so Nick Saban, he's got a lot of options. 
he's going to make a great hire, and he's got some flexibility. You could see Tosh LePoy move to that defensive line spot. That would be very, very intriguing. Uh, in the, in the, and there could even be some more movement on the coaching staff. I do think Joe Panunzio is going to stay now. There was some thought he might go back to the Philadelphia Eagles. He's close to getting his NFL pension, but I think Nick Saban is stepping up to the plate, wanting Panunzio to stay. He realizes the job he did recruiting. Uh, he's got a lot of ties in South Florida. Uh, so, you know, he did a great job with Sertain, great job with Job, and that's uh, two of the bigger pieces of the puzzle uh, for the University of Alabama in, uh, in keeping those guys you know, uh, and, and getting a couple of huge pieces uh, to go there. And uh, so uh, I think uh, Joe Panunzio, I, I, I really like him. I've met him. I think he's a great guy, really good recruiter that relates to the players. And Nick Saban trusts him completely. So whether it's staying in the, on the on-field role uh, or may, whether it's uh, going off the field, I expect Joe Panunzio to be a part of that coaching staff. And, again, we, it'll be interesting to see this last hire he makes on defense. The only holdover is going to be Toxley Poi, so it's going to be a completely new uh, bunch. But as William said, they're hungry and they're young, and I think Pete Golding is a rising star in the profession, and I can't wait to see him uh, go to work. But we're going to wrap it up on this edition of BAMS Radio here on this Friday night. It's been a quick hour plus and a great conversation. We hope all the listeners enjoy it. We're going to be live in Tuscaloosa tomorrow for some basketball as Alabama tries to bounce back from a tough road loss, 67-63 on the road in Starkville this past Tuesday. They'll be playing Tennessee, who's ranked number 15 in the country, as hot as any team in, the, in America, and hopefully Alabama can bounce back. They've got four home games left, uh, and if they can get those, they're going to be in the NCAA tournament. Uh, there are four winnable games, including Tennessee. I do think Tennessee's a winnable game for this Alabama team. Uh, and, and uh, Avery Johnson continuing to rebuild this program and do a great job despite what you might read on Twitter. And I'm sure some of y'all have seen my interesting exchanges with some of these folks uh, who, after every <laughs> loss, seem to want to fire the coach and say he's clueless. Well, I think it says a lot about the basketball IQ of some of our fan base at the University of Alabama, unfortunately. But we always enjoy being with you guys. I want to thank Thomas Watts. Uh, the Wizard Behind the Curtain, and William Redfish Barger, especially for his remembrance of Jeremy Nunley. And once again, number 73 will always be Jeremy Nunley to me and so many in my generation. Our thoughts and prayers are to, with his wife and family uh, and to the entire Bama nation, Bama Phi Psi. Uh, I know they, uh, they, everybody's going to miss Jeremy Nunley. Uh, may he rest in peace. And everybody have a great rest of your night. We'll be with you next week to talk about another, I'm sure, coaching addition to the University of Alabama and start – taking a look towards spring practice that everybody's so excited about. But everybody have a great night and roll tide.